Can you hear me okay? And Yeah, you're just a little quiet, but I can hear you clearly. Good. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. So tell me, you're are you in New York? Boston. You're in Boston. Yeah, I'm finishing up my not finishing, it's my first semester. I'm working on my master's right now. Oh, exciting. Yeah. Did my bachelor's in composition. Now I'm getting my master's in arts administration. I want to keep composing and hopefully be an artistic director at the oh, end of the line, whatever that fantastic. is. Fantastic. That's a great plan. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, are you ready to get started? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, welcome to Chatting with Creators. I always do the wrong side. This green screen is confusing. Welcome to Chatting with Creators. I'm Sapphire Sky Toth. I'm so excited to have you on the show to talk about your work on TAR. I just got back from the Women in Classical Music Symposium, so we talked about this film quite a bit. Oh, uh, for great. people who might not be in the know, would you mind introducing yourself and the film to the audience? Absolutely. So um, I'm Lucy Bright. I'm uh, a music supervisor, TAR. And TAR is a film by uh, written and directed by Todd Field. And it uh, is about Lydia Tarr, who it played by Kate Blanchett, who is a composer conductor um, at the highest possible level. And uh, the film is is a real, it's a, a, a character sort of uh, piece, but um, it delves right into the world of classical music. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, coming from this world of classical music, even though I've also worked in film and video game scores, I think I speak for a lot of musicians and composers when I say it feels still sometimes kind of cloudy what exactly music supervisors do. Even when I'm working on a score, I often just work with the producer. I never talk to the music supervisor at all. So let's dive into it. How would you describe your job to other people in the music industry? That's really interesting hearing, hearing your, your experience of it too, because the, the honest answer is, is a music supervisor can take on a lot of different meanings and roles um, and project by project every time is different. It could be, so the, the bottom line is that you are the head of department for anything to do with music in the project, in the, my case, mainly film and TV. Um, and that could range from the creative choices of composers, songs, um, the spotting sessions with, with director, thinking about how, you know, right from script stage, how music is going to be a part of this project. Um, but you're right, there are some projects I work on where even though I love having something to do with the with the composers because that's a big part of my background, um, there are some films I work on and I almost have nothing to do with the composer. You're right, they're like, you know, particularly if a director already knows who they want to work with um, and that, might, that relationship might be directly with director and producer. Um, but I guess my favorite uh, in, incarnation of the role is when you can sort of get deep in that creative and right from the script stage feel like, you know, you can be part of making music 
I mean, it's a sort of a cliche now, as people say it's often, but another character in the film. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like with Tar, you kind of have to be. Yeah, Tar, I mean, Tar is such a rare treat for a music supervisor of a film where music is front and center. It's everything, really. It's, you know, it's the um the heartbeat literally of the film um and both both technically and sort of emotionally um so yeah it was <laughs> it was a an amazing one to come on board um i so i came on at uh just before filming um so it's a focus features universal pictures film which means that the universal pictures music department headed by Mike Knobloch and Natalie Hayden, um, had been working with Todd already on some of the longer term things that need to be thought about with a script like this. So obviously um, the question of what music needed to be cleared for the film um, and also the big question, and I know I'll talk more about this, but the big question of which orchestra to work with uh, to to literally play this this semi-fictional orchestra in in the uh, in the film. So so they were already working on that when when I came on, but um, but when I read the script, it just felt. I mean, I remember my first call with Todd just after I read the script. And I said to him, it does feel almost like you've written it for me. There were so many characters, you know, people, real people that, you know, you and your listeners will will know of and that were written into the script. People like Daniel Barenboim, George Ligeti, um, Anna Thorvaldsdottir, obviously Hilda Gunnardottir. Um, who I've actually worked with over my years, either at, at Warner Classics, where I was head of PR for seven years and looked after Daniel Barenboim and, and Ligeti and many other, um, Michael Tilson Thomas, who also gets a mention on the, like a little. Yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that was kind of amazing to, you know, I, I, I've never seen a script quite like that before with so many, so many mentions of things that felt um yeah very close to me um so so that's when yeah that's when I came on and they already knew they were filming in Dresden we um uh, the big sort of next step was all about how to make that work and I know you know you all have seen films before where but for many reasons, and some of which we can talk about, uh, whenever there is classical music or an orchestra or this these kinds of um, musicians, they're often not recorded live, you know, uh, and um, sometimes that will be because they've chosen actors to play rather than musicians. Sometimes it's just the complexity and cost of recording um, as you're filming uh, mm-hmm. in, in the way that we did. Um, and, but we were all on the same page that it absolutely had to be done that way. You know, you can't for a moment be taken out of that magic 
and wonder about the process and wonder is that really them playing is that really you know Kate reacting to to them mm -hmm. is it and then re reacting to Kate so um yeah that was the the next big sort of technical challenge yeah oh my gosh so when I first heard of Tar one of my colleagues had just seen it at a small theater and he was like oh I just saw this um new film about a conductor I'm like okay that sucks because that my immediate thought when I hear about classical music being in a movie is now, now that I've been in, in classical music for over a decade, which feels weird to say since I'm 22, that I've done anything for over a decade. I'm like, I'm going I'm going to hate it. Like Amadeus is a cool film. I can't watch it without cringing. Every my friends hate watching Bridgerton with me. I'm like, where'd the clarinet come from? That, there's yeah. a string quartet over there. Where'd the clarinet come from? Somebody tell me. Where is it? I can't see it. It's so funny you should say it because I remember when the, the I think it was just the teaser trailer had had come out and I saw something online and I saw these comments which were that, which were basically like, oh my God, this is going to be awful. I can't bear watching another mind film. I can't, you know, it's, and I was just thinking, wait till you see it like <laughs> see i assume everything is going to be like that one movie with paganini where he's just like flipping his hair all the time and he's like look as i play the violin without the bow actually touching it <laughs> it's so true and you know and, and like i said there there are many reasons why those films had to be like that or or you know for for whatever reason you know they made those choices for it to be like that and and the kind of authenticity um, that you and I are thinking about uh, were not top of the list. Whereas in this, it was absolutely top of Todd's list. And it was all about how to make that happen. Yeah. So let's get into that. That was one of the questions I actually prepared was how you got to actually go to Dresden yourself to oversee the scenes involving orchestral players to ensure the realism of their playing. And that was something I honestly, when I was reading other interviews and looking at what your publicist sent me when it was like, ensure the realism of their playing. Cause I was like, I thought these, this was a real orchestra. Like, which it how is. How do you have to and, ensure and, the realism? <laughs> and which it is. And to be honest, you know, they were incredible. I mean, that that orchestra mm -hmm. is amazing. Dresden Philharmonic, incredible. All the players were great. And I think what actually made all of our lives but particularly mine easier is that they bought into this you know and I think we've all experienced some of those very high level orchestral players who are, are kind of jaded like maybe not you know slightly sniffy about thinking this is a film this is I don't really feel like my art should be you know part of this other whatever mm -hmm. but again that's the total right to feel like that but the good thing about these guys is they were up for it and you know and some of them having never acted before have speaking parts in in this film and they might be small speaking parts but I think we I mean I know for sure that the idea of kind of being on camera having to do my job but on camera would be a nightmare <laughs> So basically asking them to do that and, and to do that at the highest level. And they were, yeah, they really, they bought into it. I mean, you know, there are, of course, there are elements of 
it's mainly Marla Five that they're playing. It's a piece that they will have played, played a million times. times. So, you know, it's like, or more, exactly, they'll know inside out, which which helps everyone be relaxed in this situation. Um, but but yeah, they were fab. I mean, and and we were filming really still in the time of COVID. So it was September 21, but there were a lot of rules in place. So where in a, in a normal scenario, you, you might hope to spend more time literally just hanging out and talking about things and trying things and, you know, building those rapports. You really couldn't no. then. You know, there were there were the sort of everyone had their their coloured wristband depending on which zone you were allowed to be in and how close you could be to Kate for example or or not and um it was very very tight and it was kind of amazing that it all came together in that in that time so um so all of that to say that I mean yeah basically those those musicians made it made it very easy because they were they they were amazing yeah and I think it probably made it easier on Kate that she didn't have to conduct something they didn't know and hadn't rehearsed before absolutely yeah the idea of coming in and you know conducting a a premiere of of of, for example Tar's piece that, Mm -hmm. that that Hilda wrote in there but to you know that that would have been a very different scenario yes yeah. Um, one thing that really stuck out to me when I first heard of Tar is, wow, a woman conductor in Europe already in the U.S., only 9% of music directors are women. We haven't actually seen a woman conductor of, you know, one of the big orchestras like this before, especially because Tar claims to hail from the BSO. Uh, I know. Here in Boston. And I was like, <laughs> if there was a woman conductor at the BSO, I would know. Totally. And I think, you know, that was that that was one of the big things when Todd was writing and when he talks about it is um let's like let's write something that one hopes would be totally normal. Like <laughs> it's mm. No, and I don't obviously mean the rest of the the story of of you know, what Tard does or doesn't do, but just the the idea that she is you know, chief conductor of the Berlin Phil or whatever. Let's normalize that and make sure that it's you know it now on kind of on the biggest platform, people are going to see conductor no longer means you know, an old white guy, basically. And um, I'm giving a TED talk about it tomorrow. Oh, not on tar, but about (laughs) diversity in classical music. Oh, great. Well, I can't wait to hear that. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my gosh. I'm excited. And now I'm probably going to have to edit that part out of this podcast. Oh, sorry. No, the TED talk doesn't get published on. I give it tomorrow, but it doesn't get published on YouTube for three months because of the editing process. So I have no idea if I'm allowed to talk about it on YouTube yet. Oh, okay. So I'll probably just delete it because the last thing I need is Ted like, yo, why do you say that? I'm like, because it's public. <laughs> like, you put my face on Instagram already. Yeah, it's it's live, essentially. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. We love NDAs. They don't make sense. <laughs> One thing that I was wondering, because when I was looking at other 
articles on this. I always like to look at other articles, so I don't ask the questions that have been asked 500 times already. Is there's so many people on these pop magazines like Vulture analyzing if Kate um, is actually conducting or not. They're like, how realistic is it? So I wanted to ask you, is Kate in that in those um, moments actually conducting? She's actually it definitely conducting. looks like it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the way, you know, the ca- it's not like there's a camera angle of one way she's conducting and there's nothing but you know there's no orchestra or whatever it's absolutely you know when you see her doing that she is doing that and the sound is what was the orchestra was making in that moment there was nothing kind of re-edited or done in post for that that's no that's exactly what I thought yeah like let's let's just no offense to the vulture but let's just put all of these people like in their place we're like Let's figure it out. I'm like, it's right here. She said it. <laughs> it, it is real. This was an actual conducting. This was their response to her movements. We Absolutely. said it. We said the thing. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, you know, Kate was incredible. Kate put months and months into, um, with the wonderful Natalie Murray Beale, really learning to conduct. And of course, she would be the first to say that she is not a conductor now. You know, she has not put in the decades that the other great conductors ha- have put into to their art. But um, but in terms of the sort of the choreography, as it were, for for those scenes, like it's absolutely her. Um, and that's why I love I love that part in the film when she talks about you know that she's the one that basically starts time starts and stops time and and um and that yeah that is her starting and stopping time right there on camera oh my gosh I mean as they train you from the age of 10 as soon as you're allowed to play with an ensemble breathe together play together the conductor is literally controlling when you are allowed to breathe (laughs) one thing that I was pointed out to me is that before you know all this work in film and television is you hail from the classical music publishing world and you've gotten to work with a lot of neoclassical artists in what ways do you feel like that kind of work really set you up to work on tar and then what other skills did you learn along the way yeah it was so important I mean and and even going back to the Warner days but working with you know all of those artists from Philip Glass, Steve Reich, then through, you know, went publishing again with Philip um, there, but um, also with, I mean, with Hilda, with Hilda Gunnar-Dottir, with Kaya Sariaho, with all of these great, you know, uh, contemporary composers. I think it, more than anything, it it gives a confidence because, I, because and before I worked in these companies, you know, I, I and I was lucky, I grew up in a family that, that where, music was important and classical music was important and talked about but I didn't enjoy classical music you know in that sort of broadest terms it was not for me then when I was a teenager and and I think one of the things that really put me off and puts can put people off is there you know it's like a whole other language you see a lot of names that just you know particularly sort of historical names where you think I can't even pronounce that I don't understand you know it just seems like a big wall of of incomprehensible terms and um and I think that my all of that work I've I've done in that world 
yeah, it does give you a confidence thing that actually it's not scary. It's not, it's, you know, it's, it's just a, another sort of area and a whole other sort of niche of people that you're, you come to terms with. But, um, but I, I love being able to talk to, you know, classical musicians about the, um, the works and, and I think you do get a lot more out of it for that. And I'm not saying that you wouldn't get that from the film if you don't know those terms, but I think there's a sort of an Easter egg element to it that feels, yeah, pretty deep with that. I like to compare the classical music canon, like having knowledge of that, to Marvel fans having a ton of knowledge about Captain America, Thor, Iron Man. Those are household names. People know who Beethoven, Bach, and Brahms are, roughly, even if they're not classical music fans. But classical musicians are like, that's Bach Chorale number five. (laughs) Marvel fans are like, that's issue 466 of Captain America. Totally. And as you like you said, then that's a like a whole other level of enjoyment through being able to know what that means. I don't know. I went through a lot of pain singing Bombaraz. <laughs> You've earned it now. <laughs> Some of my colleagues who like me have also graduated and they're done, they're like, Yeah, I still play a Bach chorale a day and I'm like, I never want to do it again. Please, no. <laughs> It's not that they don't sound good. I just, I don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) And you don't have to. It's good. (laughs) Watch out. I'm going to go get a doctorate after this. And they're going to be like, can you play 12 Bach chorales for me? Right. And then then I'll perish. (laughs) It's going to happen. But away from Bach and to something I think is a lot more exciting. Tell me about how you found the iconic recording of 21 trombonists playing Here's that rainy day. Because I know all my trombone friends were immediately like, oh my gosh. Are they loving that? Oh my God, this makes me so happy. And that will make Todd so happy. So The trombones are such nerds for anyone else that plays a trombone. (laughs) So Todd's instrument is the trombone. I knew it. Yes. And so he, and he's, I mean, he hides his light under a bushel. He's a a great musician. He doesn't play regularly anymore, but you know, like anything he does he's just brilliant why so, didn't he play when they were filming he should have well, just like done I, a cameo i asked him that and he said he didn't feel like his chops were up to it right now so. but just like a five second cameo <laughs> i know i play did. like four measures <laughs> so when he was a teenager when he was first learning trombone he had this record 21 trombones by Irby Green and um, for, for those of you who don't know the record and I did not when uh, coming into this, uh, it Irby Green who one of the greatest trombones and he brought together 20 other amazing trombones of, the, of that moment in 1967 into a studio in, in New York and made an album mainly of standards, this ensemble playing standards. And here's that rainy day is the opening uh song on on that and so Todd had always loved this album he loved the idea that and I think I think he again I think his authenticity is completely correct that he felt that Tar when she went home would not be listening to classical music but would listen to jazz that you know there's that sort of it's, it's a slightly different world but it's still as sort of 
complex and interesting and that would be what she would sort of relax to would be listening to that mm. so he really wanted this um recording for this uh, when she puts it on at home and th- as i said obviously the the song is a standard so the pu- clearing of the publishing was fine but this recording was absolutely impossible to track down the master owner for this recording and I mean it really got to the point where uh because it, it had been on a very small label um slightly odd audiophile uh label that had been sort of sold and bought a couple of times since 1967 and I got to the point where I, I tracked down the last owner that we could find but and and his in fact it was his son but his son said no you know he sold it 10 years ago and I we don't know who to we don't know anything about it so that basically put that you know you you can't like if you can't get a proper license you can't use it so I I in all of this sort of trying to find the master owner I found that uh, a trombone collective in the Netherlands called the new trombone collective had made a live performance and recording of the entire album they they'd made their own recording of the album like i said they love gathering <laughs> the so low brass done, always want to be together they'd done this about a decade ago and i found this uh, and it was you know it was amazing it was it was a beautiful cover of the song in the way that uh being the 21 trombones play it um but it was a live recording so what we didn't want to license that so I said to Todd, should we try and recreate it? Why don't we get these guys to, to record it? So next thing, Todd, uh, Mona, the editor, and I are on a plane to Amsterdam and then in a car to Hilversum, which is where the, the great recording studios of the Netherlands are, the sort of radio recording studios, with these 21 trombones. And in fact, actually what we did was we recorded the 20 of the ensemble there, but there was a very specific soloist that Todd wanted, Al Kay, <laughs> who he believes is like the, the greatest living mm-hmm. trombonist. So, so he was then on holiday in, um, the, in Canada, in the Rockies. So he had to drive into Calgary. He found a studio so that he could do his, his solo there. And, and I have to say back to back, if you listen to the recordings, it's pretty accurate. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, that made me very happy that we should go to such lengths to, uh, (laughs) for what is sort of 90 seconds in the film, but it was, it was important. It was important for for Todd and um, yeah, it was fun to make that happen. My first thought with that is it kind of like imagining getting all those trombonists together to record that and everything. Just my experience, you know, going through music school, being a composer, having been in band for the better part of my existence, is that would be a real power struggle for a conductor like Tar to be trying to conduct 21 trombonists <laughs> all at once. Just four trombonists will drive you crazy. Like I tell my friends, yes, the trombones get batons thrown at them on a regular basis. That's not weird. <laughs> That's what happens. So, like, trying to imagine the character Tar trying to conduct 21 trombone players. Yeah, maybe that's why she wants the biggest struggle. Yeah, that's maybe it just makes her feel relaxed that she doesn't have to to conduct that 21 trombones. (laughs) 
my friends who like listen to my music they're like oh my gosh this is in 11 8 is this what you listen to all the time i'm like no i'm listening to taylor swift at home i don't bring my work home with me i also just like taylor swift nothing wrong with that i also sometimes listen to jacob collier in my free time but not too long otherwise i start counting too much interesting oh he's great i love him i would i would die and also, if I got to tra- have a master class in conducting with Beal, I would also die. There, I I might be a professional composer now, but there's still quite a few musicians that if I saw them, I would probably just faint. Yeah, no, that was a big one. And then that and that was a really nice moment. Then recording, so the soundtrack album, which obviously is is not a normal kind of original soundtrack album it's it's basically the concept album mm-hmm. that she is creating in the film you know so so all the bits that you hear little bits of the Marla Five, the Elgar, Cello Concerto, the Tar's own piece that she's writing that you never hear complete but then on the album it's like a companion piece you hear mm-hmm. the the uh the final versions and that was really fun recording at Abbey Road with the London Symphony Orchestra for the the kind of more core repertoire, the Mahler and the Elgar, and then um, the London Contemporary Orchestra for uh, for Tarr's piece, Hilda's piece, and uh, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. What is it like navigating all those different musicians' unions? Like, it's crazy, right? That's an interesting. Well, so for um, the for Germany uh, and Dresden, that there isn't the same kind of union. Um, so the thing there is that, as with lots of um, German and European orchestras, that they take votes on things. So they had to take a vote on whether they even wanted to to be part of the film. Um, and partly because uh, the the days, uh, hours would be different from their usual contracts and things like that. So slightly different. From, so it wasn't union issues. It was sort of uh, orchestra issues but then in the UK you're right it's the it's the MU and um and both the LSO and the LCO are, are you know signed up to that so so it's sort of fairly strict strict rules on that and trying to get a lot done in a and then 20 amount. trombonists in what was it Canada and so the 20 were in the Netherlands and then the one, Netherlands, and then one so, so yeah and again there yeah that was um not union because they're outside of that so um wow you're right there's a lot to navigate (laughs) oh yeah i'm i'm prep i took business law in undergrad and now i'm taking art law next semester i'm prepping well done i need you for the the next one (laughs) hey if you're looking for an intern i need to fulfill an internship credit (laughs) i i find it so interesting to talk about unions because right now I'm involved in the unionization of grad workers here at BU and one thing we found out is um our college of fine arts their school of music they do not they will not hire union musicians to be grad students so if you're a grad student here because the union says you have to pay your musicians at least $35 an hour which you know doesn't sound like an unreasonable rate right but they don't want to pay their GAs that much so that's so interesting. Wow, it even has impact on that. Yeah. My shameless plug to everyone vote yes for the union. We are <laughs> in two weeks. Oh my God. 
Yeah, it's interesting because we're having the same thing with the unionization of, of music supervisors in the US because we have a guild, but we're not uh, only sort of starting to with the idea of the union. And um, so, yeah, lots of that going on as well. I am for organization of labor. Definitely, 100%. When you were looking at, you know, tar and everything and looking at the state of the current music industry, did you think about it so much as being within our current music industry or as something that's like its own universe? Is it complete fiction or did you think it of it as like realistic fiction? I think it's pretty realistic fiction. I mean, to the point of there, were, there are certain scenarios and I don't mean in the terms of the sort of um, controversial ones that were are in the film, but more the things like the meeting at Cami. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah, <laughs> I, I've been, I've sat in those meetings. Like I know. What, mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I think it feels, maybe it feels something like, the near future or something like that where where things are obviously with representation much more open but also a a greater de- degree of dis- of public discussion about things and that there's a definitely a positive element to that but um but yeah it's pretty realistic i don't know what you thought about the the kind of the juilliard scenes that but those I mean, I think that's one of the most amazing scenes in the film. It's so... No, I I enjoyed it. And I thought it was, you know, pretty realistic, especially like how I've interacted with a lot of students, having currently being in grad school and recently graduating undergrad. That was another thing I thought was interesting when I read more popular publications talking about it. And they're like, you're going to have a hard time finding a cello player at Juilliard who doesn't like Bach. No, you're not. I agree. It's very easy to find a cello player <laughs> who doesn't like playing Bach. We just talked earlier about how I, as a clarinetist and singer and pianist, I am tired of Bach. I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> I mean, if I had to play the Mozart clarinet concerto one more time, I'm going to fight someone. It's I'm not so that hard <laughs> to find someone who doesn't want to play a certain composer anymore. Yeah, I totally agree. But an interesting, and, but those discussions around why as well are, are very are, are interesting i i don't feel like i take such a hard line view myself either way but but there's yeah i think it's kind of can see both sides of those arguments the musical <laughs> canon feels like those tenured professors who are great but you also wonder why they've been there so long so long they're not going anywhere <laughs> oh tenure <laughs> that that's a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll save I'll save that for my music academia podcast that I don't have yet, but we'll get into. Lucy, also, I just realized I didn't ask, what is your instrument if you have one? I know you were much of a classical music fan growing oh, up. Oh, that's but... so interesting. So I learned the piano as a kid, but and, and I can read music, you know, but but I really and I think this is one of the reasons why I love my job and why that you know it felt so good going into it is that I know I'm not a musician and but when I say that I mean you know I I just acknowledge that there's a massive difference between the ability to read music and know what that sounds like to 
performing that to creating that whatever and I the latter I cannot do it's just it's just not in me um so I'm sort of a train spotter I'm sort of like the academic side of it in a in a way or, or the emotional response to it um but I'm yeah I cannot play really <laughs> and that's okay I think that you are a musician even if you are not an instrumentalist I've got, got my ears <laughs> yes exactly oh my gosh I took four years to complete the two-year oral skills cycle so having ears that. means a lot so <laughs> I'm gonna plug in my random album right there for you real quick in the chat oh, and because okay. I just realized we're at time so thank oh, you wow, so much a, I know I I enjoyed talking to you so much and this morning oh, I was like nerding too. out to my friends and this is where the recording ends and I'm not really sure why Zoom said it kept recording, but that was a lie. But I nerded out, we said our goodbyes, and at least the meat of the conversation was kept. Hey y'all, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was so much fun to just talk to Lucy about Tar and her experience as the coordinator for all the amazing music that went into this film. As somebody in the classical music world, we've been talking about Tar for months, and it was great to finally see it to fruition. If you haven't seen it yet, go check it out in theaters. And I'll talk to you later. Bye.